Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 22, and we'll pick up at verse 63, and we'll read through to Luke 23, stopping at 25. It'll be on the screen behind me, or you can follow on your um, Bibles on your seats. So Luke 22, verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, You say that I am. Then they said, Why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he had hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. They won the asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will. Thank you, Leah. Uh, well, in 2005, Coca-Cola introduced... Coke Zero into the world, and the slogan was, 
a taste of life as it should be. Does anyone remember that? Life as it should be? Isn't that the dream? Uh, Of course, advertisers are going to want to tap into the good life, right? You know, the freedom of life at the beach, the perfect temperature for a splash in the water followed by some beach cricket with your loved ones, all followed up by a big cold esky full of the perfect beverage, and it doesn't even have any sugar. How good is that? You know those moments when everything is in its right place? They're so good. But man, I wish they happened more, don't you? And the reason I remember this ad campaign is because of what was happening in my life in 2005. Uh, I was in high school. Uh, One of my best mates was reeling from losing his mum to cancer a few months earlier. A teenager losing his mum. Uh, It turned his life upside down and sent shockwaves through our friendship group. Uh, Stir into that the everyday dramas of life as an angry teenager. I remember walking up Jetty Road Glenelg with my friends and, and seeing those ads and just thinking it was an absolute joke. Because nothing was as it should be. Thanks, Coke. You know, that's the world we live in, isn't it? We long for the, you know, beach cricket moments of freedom, but there's so much disorder. You know, just this week I've read stories of hospitals and schools being attacked in Ukraine, human lives being treated as worthless. It's really not hard to think of examples of why the world is not as it should be. How about in your world at the moment? Is your life going as it ought to be? That historical account that we've just heard from Luke has to be one of the most cutting portraits of a world in disorder. Weak leadership, groupthink, bloodlust, an innocent man treated as a joke. Everything topsy-turvy. And yet it's absolutely spot on, isn't it? That's humanity, right? The question we're asking today is, how does God respond to a world where nothing is as it should be? And if you're thinking the answer uh, has something to do with the man standing on trial, you're definitely onto it. Uh, This story has been preserved through the centuries as a source of deep joy, relief and restoration for so many. But we can't take that news lightly, can we? Because following Jesus doesn't make life all beach cricket and bubbly water. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I'm here to say that following Jesus makes life something so much better than that. But it would be a shame if I got here and replaced one shiny ad campaign with another. Uh, You might have heard the story back in 2017, I think, of the Christian uni student called Josh. Uh, Josh offered to pray for a stressed-out classmate. Um, Later, he found out that a report was filed against him for student misconduct. Uh, He was suspended from uni and required to attend counselling so that he could learn to behave properly towards others. Uh, and told that if he went onto campus again, he'd be escorted off by security. 
It's topsy-turvy, but it's, it's a pretty unusual story here in Australia, but it's a taste of how followers of Jesus have been treated from the start. You know, Luke's first readers, they would have been hearing the, the news about Jesus in a context where they also would have been hearing stories about Christians being falsely accused of stirring up trouble, uh, gentle, forgiven people being arrested and worse. You can understand why they might have been wondering, am I sure I want to follow this Jesus? How does God respond to this kind of disordered world? If I'm going to throw my lot in with Jesus in this world, I need to be convinced about the answer to that question. And today Luke takes us right into the heart of a topsy-turvy world and shows us exactly how God responds. So point one in your leaflets, when insanity takes the place of reason. The man who took a dead girl by the hand and said, My child, get up. Being condemned to a death so disgusting, it was reserved for murderers. Whatever you think of Jesus, one thing is clear. There's nothing rational about what goes on in the early hours of that Good Friday. The portrait of insanity begins with the religious leaders, the good people in verse 66, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They've studied the Old Testament. They know the promises that point so clearly to Jesus being their saviour. They should be the first in line to follow after him. But instead, they have Jesus led out before them to try and catch him. And you can tell that Jesus knows that the time for reasoning has passed. You know, his being the son of God is truer than they know, but they just see it as an excuse to take Jesus to Pilate who can rubber stamp an execution. See how they make it political in verse 2 of chapter 23. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. Jesus' words on paying taxes in chapter 20 are a genius response to a trick question. But one thing is clear, Jesus is for paying taxes because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. The kind of Messiah Jesus claims to be is so much bigger than just a rival Caesar big enough to challenge a religious hierarchy. So they twist his words to get the outcome they want. Next up is the secular leaders. Pontius Pilate was a Roman, maintaining law and order in Judea, which included Israel's historic capital, Jerusalem, a region that knew its share of religious tension. I counted four times in our passage that Pilate explicitly declares Jesus innocent. Verse 4, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Verse 14, I have found no basis for your charges. Verse 15, nothing to deserve death. Verse 22, no grounds for the death penalty. No basis, no grounds, no reason at all. It would be baseless, unreasonable, insane, to condemn this man. 
And yet in verse 24, Pilate decides to grant the wishes of an angry crowd. We see what matters more to him, and it's not justice. What a spineless move. King Herod is the other secular leader. He's the official king of the Jews, Jewish by descent, but on the Roman side. Verse 8 tells us that Herod was greatly pleased to see Jesus. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. But when he doesn't get what he wants, he's perfectly happy for his soldiers to rough him up a bit and then send him back to Pilate in an elegant robe to mock his claim as king. If Pilate is weak, kind of palming him off to Herod, the king of the Jews shows cruel, flippant indifference. It's just another day in the office in a world like ours. And then there's the crowd. When Pilate calls together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people in verse 13... I think we're meant to feel a flicker of hope because in Luke, the people flock to Jesus. They're the reason the religious leaders are so threatened by him. And there's a very good chance some of these people were there just a few days prior praising Jesus as he rode that donkey into Jerusalem's gates. But here they are now, shouting over the top of Pilate's innocent verdict, we want blood How fickle is the approval of crowds? How weak is the human will? Has anyone heard of the Milgram experiment? Do you know that one? In the 60s, uh, this guy Stanley Milgram tested people's willingness to obey authority figures. uh, And a person in charge would tell the participant to send an electric shock to someone in the next room every time that person got a wrong answer in a test. And they kind of scaled up the shock each time. Uh, The participant wasn't told that the cries of pain coming from the next room were just coming from actors. But the study found that most people were willing to give a shock big enough to cause death, maybe reluctantly, but just because they were told to. Milgram's experiment uncovered something that we see here in Luke 23. A crowd of normal people who theoretically know that Jesus is a good man to say the least, under the influence of the religious authorities with a bit of hysteria thrown in, they find themselves crying out for a crucifixion. How does God respond to a world where nothing is as it should be? I think the first part of the answer is, he shows it for what it is. God's son allows this display of ugliness to play out. Imagine the court officials going back over the tapes of this case, you know, in the days to come. Nobody comes out looking good, right? This deeply unflattering story of humanity isn't just preserved in the records. God has given it to us in the Bible. So the unsettling question is, do you recognize yourself in this story? We're all capable of irrational behavior, aren't we? I don't know about you, but 
that irrational side comes through worse for me when I'm tired, when I'm hungry, when I'm in a bad mood, the list goes on. Maybe it's just me. Sometimes the things that we get our minds set on aren't good for us. And if we could just take a step back and maybe have a snack, we'd realize it. That's what Luke's inviting us to do here. Now, you don't have to answer this question out loud, but do you resonate with any of the behavior displayed in this passage? The religious leaders, with their stubborn refusal to take Jesus on his own terms, because he's just too challenging. Have you ever found yourself wanting to turn a deaf ear to what Jesus has to say? Or Herod, he wants to sit on the fence. He's happy to side with Jesus as long as Jesus gives him what he wants. He doesn't actually explicitly reject Jesus, but his actions speak louder. You can't really sit on the fence with Jesus. Or if you were Pilate, what would you have done? Do you know what it's like to feel torn between being drawn to Jesus but being scared of what the louder voices in your world might think? Pilate tries to get the best of both worlds by just going passive. I don't agree, but if you insist, but there's no such thing as a passive response to Jesus, is there? Pilate shows his true colors. Or the crowd. We like to think we're made of pretty good stuff overall that we'd stand up for justice and truth and innocence if we had to. Stanley Milgram and Luke would suggest otherwise. The scary thing is the crowd get exactly what they want in this story. As Pilate surrenders Jesus to their will, it's an ugly, ugly picture. Sometimes the things we want aren't good Our dreams of life as it should be can quickly become nightmares. Whether it's, you know, climbing to the top of the ladder and then realize it was leaning up against the wrong wall, or telling the God who loves you to get out of your life and him saying, okay. It's a decision we will deeply regret when the time comes for the tape to be played back. I think Luke invites us to consider three big swaps in this passage. And here's the first one. Will you consider swapping stubbornness for sense? Stubbornness for sense. Could today be a good day to acknowledge, just to yourself and God, your own capacity for unreasonable behavior? Where you've been trying to push away the God who loves you where the louder voices are winning the day. It might not be the popular easy road, but there is nothing more sensible than siding with Jesus, the only one coming off looking good in this story. The Son of God come down into the mess to put things right. Because there's more going on in this trial than just a tragic injustice. Point two, when creatures unite against the Creator. That's really what's going on in this trial. I reckon that's what verse 12 is underlining. 
That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. By all accounts, Herod and Pilate had a rocky relationship. Uh, Pilate had upset uh, Herod with his rough treatment of Jewish people before. But here they are, mending fences over a common issue. A Jew and a Gentile together, both taking the side of the Jewish elders. But there's more going on. For readers who grew up on the Old Testament, this little note about Herod and Pilate buddying up would have brought a passage straight to mind. Have a listen to what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed or his Messiah, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. That's exactly what's going on here, right? Herod, Pilate, the Jewish elders and the general population banding together against the Lord and against Jesus, his Messiah. What looks like just another day at the office in a cruel world is much more than that. It's the world united against God. And really... All the cruelty, the injustice of our disordered world, it's a symptom of that bigger disorder. Where the creatures think that we can kick the creator out of his world by means of a bloody cross. That's the world we live in. A world of wannabe messiahs, all trying to be the boss. You can see how that leads to trouble, right? Because... If I'm the Messiah of my little world, who are you to stop me from getting what I want? How does God respond to such a mess? Here's how Psalm 2 goes on. It says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. As Herod and Pilate join forces against God, God is not threatened one bit. And Jesus, standing there silently, isn't phased at all. Luke is clear. Jesus dies as the king. The elegant robe is spot on. As he hangs on the mountain of Golgotha, just outside Jerusalem, God is installing his king. The king who sheds his blood for the sake of his own people, the very people rejecting him. When the creatures unite against their creator, the creator steps in to save the creatures from themselves. Nothing will stop him from installing that king. And Jesus' first followers took great comfort in that reality After Jesus rose from the dead, Peter and John get some kickback for talking about the resurrection, and they end up on trial before the religious establishment themselves. You can read about it in Acts 4. When they come back and tell their friends about it, they pray Psalm 2. And they say to God, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats 
and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. That's the second swap I think Luke is inviting us into today, to swap panic for prayer. Because nothing will stop God from installing his king, even when the whole world is gathered against him. You know, when you hear those Josh stories, where you feel outnumbered as a Christian in your workplace, it's tempting to feel discouraged, isn't it? It might even be tempting to wonder, do I want to be really associated with a Lord who cops so much rejection? Or maybe closer to the bone, how would I feel about the kids in my life missing out on stuff because people know that they trust in Jesus? These are the kinds of questions that believers have had to ask from day dot. And I think Luke gives us this story to convince us that even if the whole world stands against you, if you stand with Jesus, you've got all you need. And so we're free to have compassion on the mockers. Do they know they're mocking their creator? And we're freed to pray, Lord, you've been here first. Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. How does God respond to a world where nothing's as it should be? First, he exposes it for what it is. Second, he's not phased at all. Because third, he does something about it once and for all. Point three, when the innocent takes the place of the guilty. You know there's something wrong in the world when a convicted murderer walks free and an innocent man who happens to be God's chosen king goes to the cross. This is how verse 19 describes Barabbas. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, a riot in the city, and for murder. He'd actually done what the leaders accused Jesus of. He stirred up the people and he got blood on his hands in the process. This is the man the crowd begs for. The irrationality comes to a peak in verse 25. Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Barabbas is literally a criminal. Jesus has been declared innocent four times in this passage. He's the giver of life, not a murderer. He deals in redemption, not revenge. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. And so Barabbas walks free. Nobody in this passage comes off looking good, do they? The religious leaders want their promised Messiah dead. Pilate is weak. Herod is flippant. The crowds are crazed. And Barabbas is their man. Nobody comes out clean. Except Jesus. Only Jesus acts with integrity, even when it costs him everything. The world thinks that it's putting Jesus on trial today. But as we play back the tape... It's really the opposite, isn't it? The religious and the irreligious, the high and the low, showing their true colours, and it's not a pretty sight. 
In this moment, as the Messiah is handed over, the verdict on our world is clear. Guilty. But when Jesus shows his true colours under pressure, it's such a contrast. The first thing that stands out is his silence. Look again at verse 9. Herod plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Now, Jesus has previously shut down the naysayers with a word, but today he chooses silence. Why? Well, he spoke about it less than 12 hours ago at Passover. He said, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And he was talking about an Old Testament promise made 700 years earlier in Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah promised a servant who would go to his death silent like a lamb. A death in the company of criminals, taking the punishment that we deserve so we can have peace with God. Jesus' silence speaks volumes. It tells us that he was consciously offering himself up as that lamb for our crimes against God to bring peace. You know those beach cricket moments? They really are a taste of life as it should be. Not because of the coke, but because they're moments of peace. Moments with our loved ones where relationships are going well, where we're free just to enjoy being together. They're a taste of the peace we all sorely need. Peace with God. That's why Jesus died. So that you and I can enjoy being in right relationship with our Creator, the God we've all tried to shut out. So we can come home to God's table in eternity, where all is finally put right. Jesus only makes one explicit statement in this passage. It's there in verse 69 of chapter 22. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. And this is the confronting thing. The sacrificial lamb is also the judge of Judgment Day. The Son of Man is an Old Testament title for the one vested with the power to rule the universe. We started off this sermon asking the question, how does God respond to a world where nothing is as it should be? Well, he sends his son right into that mess to experience the full brunt of it, to save us from it. But I think the big question is, how will you respond to the God who did that? Because it's not really Jesus who's on trial here. At the end of the day, those who condemned him will stand before the Son of Man. And so will each of us. And in that day, he will be doing all the talking. The Lamb is the judge. And the judge is the Lamb. And so we arrive at Luke's third and greatest swap. My guilt for Jesus' innocence. Imagine being Barabbas that day. You know, you're in your jail cell. You've committed crimes, you've been caught, and you know 
that you've done nothing but deserve the death penalty. In the corner of your cell, there's a big wooden beam. The Romans have put it there to let you know what you're in for. You've seen crucifixions before, and oh man, you can't close your eyes without picturing it. You'll try to stay strong, but today's the day. They're going to come into your cell. They're going to make you drag that beam outside the city gates, and they're going to hang you on it until you've lost every ounce of your dignity. You hear a commotion outside. The guard comes to your door. This is it. It's happening. He grabs you. But something weird happens. He grabs your wrists and unlocks your cuffs. And you stand there for a second. He says, you're free. Get out of here. What? It's your lucky day. The governor has decided to let you go. And as you walk out of your cell, you see the guard take that wooden beam and thrust it on a man dressed bizarrely as a king. He's going instead. Luke leaves us wondering what happens to Barabbas. How did he respond to Jesus going in his place? Did he make the most of it? We don't know. The question is, how will you respond? Will you accept that great exchange? Everything was upside down in the early hours of that Good Friday. The sheer irrationality of creatures turning against their creator. The only truly innocent person who ever lived taking the place of the guilty. But God's chosen king did that on purpose, to put everything right. We've all committed crimes against God. We've all sided with the crowd in one way or another. When you play back the tape on your life, what are the bits that you cringe at? Where you've treated God and his world all wrong. The judge of heaven and earth came right down into this topsy-turvy world to take that guilt off your shoulders and to walk it painstakingly to Golgotha, to unlock the prison cell so you can walk out free, at peace with your maker, because he loves you. Whether today is the first time you've understood what Jesus has done for you or you've been following him for years, you can't walk away today without being amazed by Jesus, that he would do that for you and me. Please don't walk away today without saying thank you. That he would take the chains off your hands the cross reserved for you, so you'll never have to face it. What does it look like to live in that freedom and peace? Just one question I want to leave you with today. 
which judge's opinion matters most to you? Is it the opinion of the crowds? Is it the desires within? The ambitions of our culture? Or the condemning voice of guilt? I don't know about you, but today is a great reminder that there's no more freeing opinion, no opinion I'd rather care about than the judge who went in my place. The judge who sees me in all my failures and flaws and says, not guilty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know how messed up our world is. And we confess to you today that we are messed up too. In our hearts, in our thinking, in our actions, we've treated you like you don't exist. We've put ourselves first. Father, our maker, we deserve your condemnation. Thank you for sending Jesus to go in our place. Thank you, Jesus, for taking that cross on your shoulders and all my guilt with it. Please help each of us today, whatever our circumstances, to know the absolute joy of peace with you. Amen.